I was in a theory uh, group in the Cavendish where we, we did the um, uh, professors would count success in, in your career on how many experiments you have been able to motivate and then turn out to be mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. And for the typical scientist, that, that's a very difficult thing to do. You would be able to count those on probably on the fingers on one hand. Mm -hmm. But that was sort of truly the, the proof that what you're doing is important, is useful, and actually truly works mm -hmm. in the real world. And I was uh, as a completely focused on doing theory that would then lead on to that kind of experimental verification. Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics of the Cavendish Laboratory here at the University of Cambridge. Hi, I'm Shimone Saire Barker, a PhD student studying experimental physics. Hello, I'm Jacob Butler from the Department's Educational Outreach Office. Today we're joined by Dr. Gareth Condrid. Gareth is a lecturer at Gondolin Keys College and a Royal Society Research Fellow here at the department. He leads a research group focused on developing machine learning methods for understanding and designing new materials and chemicals. In 2017, he co-founded the company Intelligence, through which he's worked with companies such as Rolls-Royce to apply software developed in the lab to the kinds of materials questions faced by industry. Today, we talk about how the joy of physics can come from breaking things down in to understand how they work, Gareth's journey th through Cambridge life as an undergraduate, postgraduate, and now independent researcher, and the exciting opportunities and advances that arise when you bring physics and computers together to solve real-world challenges. Stay with us. So welcome to the podcast, Gareth. To start off, it'd be great to get to know the start of your journey into becoming a person doing physics. <laughs> um, was it the deep philosophical pull of the big questions about the universe or more the puzzle aspect of it, of breaking down reality into smaller and smaller pieces and putting them back together into a way it makes sense that drew you in? No, thank you very much for having me uh, here today. And my journey into physics really started when I was a child, perhaps seven, eight years old or so, when I started getting into uh, uh, making Meccano models Mm -hmm. So I've really enjoyed the so the physical creation side of starting out with little components, putting them all together in order to make something bigger, and then also understanding how they worked and how to make them better. What was it in particular about that that you found kind of fascinating? Well, we're seeing how you could take standard components that you could use to make any different kind of model, and when you put them together in a particular way, that you could create a crane, that you could create a car. And then when I got a little bit older, that you could create some very complicated gearboxes of multi-speed uh, with synchro mesh, mm. automatic, etc. And seeing just creating something complex out of uh, uh, very standard and simple components. Mm -hmm. And so obviously now you work in machine learning, so mm -hmm. doing a lot of stuff with computers. Was that interest in computers also something that you developed as a child or was that later on that your interest in kind of computational physics and so on? No, I think uh, my interest in computers developed almost at the same time or mm -hmm. maybe even earlier when my parents had one of the uh, sort of early BBC computers that were of course made uh, by the company co-founded by Herman Hauser who came out of here out of the Cavendish hmm. and in that it was it saw much of the same attraction that you could write programs there were a very small subset of commands even smaller in those days which you could take you could 
So put together in different ways, in complicated ways, in order to make something that that's displayed a very rich uh, uh, behavior. And I also enjoyed the advantage of the computers, which was once you wrote something, it would never break. Whereas if you made something out of Meccano, it tended to rattle around, shake around, the bolt mm-hmm. would come loose, they'd be found in the vacuum cleaner, much of my uh, parents' <laughs> chagrin. And so I was at that time also greatly drawn into the world of computing. Mm-hmm. You kept any of your early things. I mean, as well as not disappearing up the hoover, I imagine computer programs are a bit easier to leave around the house than, uh, than Meccano structures are. I certainly do. Uh, <laughs> uh, I still have some of the, the early programs, in particular as a, when I was doing my French GCSE and needed help to learn all of that vocabulary. I wrote a, a vocabulary testing device. <laughs> you put all the words in and it asks you them at random and said yes and no, and you got them right and wrong. So I still uh, sort of have that uh, today. <laughs> look forward to passing it on to my uh, nephew mm-hmm. in a few years' time. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I had early prototype Duolingo. <laughs> <laughs> now, before heading off to university to study sciences, you participated in the International Physics Olympiad during your time at school. Can you tell us about what they were like and uh, what your experience on it was like? Oh, no, thanks for asking. The uh, Physics Olympiad really is a great uh, organisation. So I started out in the British Physics Olympiad competition. So I was doing this when I was, what, late 17, early 18-year-old. And there's a couple of initial rounds that were done at school and then you got in. I was fortunate to do well in that and got invited to the, the national finals, which in those days was held at Abingdon School. And it was really one of the first time that I got to meet some like-minded people. I was astonished at the standard of uh, some of them uh, uh, and learned a lot from my time with them. And then I was also fortunate enough to get into the international team, which that year we went off to Bali to compete. (laughs) (laughs) This is my first time going definitely that far abroad, my first time going outside of (laughs) Europe and to the Southern Hemisphere. And so that was a really uh, a great trip. And my parents say I came back a changed young man from that. <laughs> Hopefully in a good way. <laughs> I think with a more results-focused drive behind me. Hmm. Now, it sounds like this was a great experience. Uh, for our listeners who are in school, would you recommend that they join? Do you still take a part in the Olympiad world somehow now? Yes, I certainly recommend that they have a go at uh, entering that. So the first round, couple of rounds are held within the school and there's now a fantastic website. We can download all the past papers, uh, see how it goes and uh, uh, um, highlight to your teachers the form they need to fill in to allow you to enter. And yes, I'm still involved in that, that the Physics Olympiad nowadays is based, organised, from here at the Cavendish, we hold the, uh, so the the training for the national team just before they go out abroad uh, here. And I participate in that, being involved in teaching the special relativity section. Uh-huh. Now, my uh, colleague in outreach helps write some of the questions for us. And I've seen some of the uh, the tricks he puts in. I think there's, uh, there's Steve and Robin and they delight in confusing each other. And they're two of the most intelligent people I've met. So... Uh, what the training, yeah, training. What these kids get through is phenomenal. Yeah. Also heard as well, just as a quick aside, it's a great uh, preparation for uh, Cambridge and Oxford type interviews as well. Mm. So if you're uh, interested in those sorts of uh, highly selective universities, then the Olympiads a fantastic opportunity to, uh, yeah, to start thinking like they want you to think. So absolutely, I think it's the, the, the taking of the core curriculum that you already know at school to, uh, and, and then applying it in a slightly more cunning, as he said, 
uh, sort of inventive in, uh, way. And that's exactly also the quality that we look for in the admissions interviews in colleges. I know Steve delights in posing questions to me which look impossible and then turn out to be sort of two lines of, uh, of maths or something incredibly simple and it's that sort of perception that's phenomenal. Yeah, just figuring out what the right question to ask is. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so you're actually the first person that we've had on the podcast, I think, who studied their undergraduate, postgraduate um, degrees here at Cambridge and then also now works here. So casting your mind back to the undergraduate days in natural sciences, what was it about the course that you enjoyed? Um, did they kind of foster your engineering and computational interests that you'd hoped for or were you kind of pulled in different directions? No, so I really liked the breadth of the course. That in my first year, I not only took physics, but also maths uh, uh, and uh, uh, material sciences and the chemistry uh, options. And that being able to so be exposed to those different areas and learn about different sciences has proven to be extremely useful in going forward as in my career these days, in when we are doing machine learning, we are applying it to all manner of different subject areas. There's a, one day I might be talking to uh, uh, Professor Janet Lees, a professor of civil engineering doing concrete just up the road, in which case I use my material science knowledge. And the next day we're working with uh, various drug companies like AstraZeneca just down the road, where I'm using a combination of chemistry and also a little bit of biology knowledge. And so I think having that breadth of uh, knowledge really sets you up well to do interdisciplinary research later on. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like the practical aspect of the more engineering kind of material science um, stuff was more in line with what you were originally saying interested you about the kind of mechano, the taking the small things and putting them together to make something new. Was that interest, did that interest kind of change into being interested in the material science and kind of machine what later became the machine learning aspect because you could kind of see the real world applications of what you were doing or was it still just the kind of this is just fun to do I know for me <laughs> the real world applications are absolutely crucial and so I very much enjoyed doing the practicals here at Cambridge and there's plenty to do in your first and second years and then later on if you decide to continue down that uh, uh, route and getting exposed to some sort of uh, bits of experimental kit that you certainly wouldn't encounter at school and being able to be trusted to use them and get to know how effective they can be is very important. Mm -hmm. But I think the what you mentioned about real world applications is also was fostered later on in my career, part, partly actually through summer jobs that I had whilst I was an undergrad working for a variety of different companies uh, across the country, but also from the thought that um, I, I, I was in a theory group in the Cavendish where we, we the, the um, uh, professors would count success in, in your career on how many experiments you have been able to motivate and then turn out to be <laughs> mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. And for the typical scientist that, that's a very difficult thing to do you would be able to count those on probably on the fingers on one hand mm -hmm. but that was sort of truly the, the proof that what you're doing is important is useful and actually truly works mm -hmm. in the real world and I was as uh, a completely focused on doing theory that would then lead on to that kind of experimental verification. Mm -hmm. And what kind of jobs the ones that you mentioned kind of drew your interest into other things what were they so in the first well, whilst i was still at school i worked for i think for four consecutive years for a programming company called New newman and spur consultancy who uh, wrote software for the military and for those at home who have come across computer games like civilization it's just like that a simulator <laughs> of war but that the military use 
in order to sort of practice possible various conflicts that they're in. And so that working there was a really cool job. Over the summer, and as I got older, I got trusted from do, doing very sort of small, simple tasks up to some more sort of complex programming uh, uh, projects that I was involved in. And then later on, I worked for Ford Motor Company one summer on their computer system. And then for a couple more summers, I worked at um, uh, various universities across the country on uh, different research projects, both in material sciences area, but also in astrophysics. Now, despite not being someone who was set on having an academic career, you began your PhD in the Theory of Condensed Matter group. And what sort of physics were you studying there? You talked a little bit about how it was yeah, the important thing was tying it to reality, uh, to, um, yeah, to reality, to real world applications. But I was wondering what your uh, particular area of expertise was. So, yes, yeah, so a theory of condensed matter is the physics of materials, but very exotic materials. Uh, the sort of, so one example of that is electrons in a solid where electrons are unusual because every single electron interacts with every other single electron through, in that instance, the Coulomb interaction. And that means if one electron moves, it kind of drags and influences all the other electrons in the system. And that can lead itself onto very complex uh, behavior but that's also married with that the electrons are in the quantum mechanical regime which leads to very counterintuitive physics in its own right but in condensed matter we have the juxtaposition of many body physics together with quantum mechanics and that can lead to very exotic phenomena and in those days I was studying superconductivity and uh, ferromagnetism so it's developing superconductors or looking to understand it better? or not? Oh, so uh, looking to understand them better and to go one step further. In those days, we weren't even doing that with electrons. We were doing it with a system called cold atom gases, which at the time was very fashionable. <laughs> so that's a gas of atoms that has been cooled down to a few uh, uh, hundred nanokelvin, at which point you would think that the cold atom gas would rather be a lump of uninspiring solid at the bottom of the apparatus, <laughs> which it would be. But you get the atoms stuck in a kind of energetically metastable state that takes several seconds for it to relax out of, which is several seconds is an age mm -hmm. for these atoms. And you can then use them to be able to explore very exotic physics. And that is because they have a simpler interaction between them than the electrons. They're just like hard balls moving mm -hmm. around. And that makes the mathematics easier. <laughs> And also each atom is like, has an internal structure, unlike the electrons. And so it's like its own little mini science laboratory whizzing around and you can zap it with laser beams or with radio waves or with magnetic fields to change the inter so internal structure of the atoms. And that allows you to change how they interact with each other and also to sense its local environment to tell you to what it's feeling at the moment. And that made it the ideal system to go and explore. In that instance, we were a very exotic kind of ferromagnetism. Mm -hmm. So after your PhD, you're awarded various fellowships, one from Goldman Keyes College here at Cambridge, where you now are, yeah. um, and one from the Royal Commission for the Exhibition of 1851, which led you to the Weizmann Institute in Israel. Could you tell us more about the research that you kind of had proposed in these fellowships and how then, you know, we're interested here a lot in the podcast and like the journey that people have gone yeah. through. How was it to, then, to go from, you know, being somebody studying physics, doing kind of you know, starting your own independent research in your PhD, but really, you know, being still a student and then going to kind of deciding what to do on your own and becoming an independent researcher. 
Yeah, so you make a really good point there about the importance of independence. So I'd just started the first vestiges of that during my PhD, where I had written a very good paper with my supervisor, or maybe more, my supervisor had helped me write a very good paper. <laughs> Uh, um, and then I sort of took that and then wrote a follow-up paper. I just slightly modified it to go from rather than 3D to 2D, of which my supervisor already laid out the template of what to do. Mm-hmm. And there were still uh, what was it, many adventures along the way in order to get that published, but it really helped me learn sort of some of the steps necessary to be independent. But then going into these research fellowships, I proposed to continue to study the same kind of quantum mechanical systems. But during my PhD, we had focused on them being static. So what is almost the ground state of them, like the ground state of a ferromagnet is all the little magnetic moments being aligned. But to instead uh, go on and study the dynamics of these systems, how do they change uh, with time, which opens up a whole Pandora's (laughs) box Mm -hmm. Of issues. So I was having a lot of funding that. I uh, had a great time uh, working at the Vitamin Institute in Israel where the, uh, the academic standards are incredibly high there. But it was during that time that I sort of, uh, was in, uh, sort of looking at sort of a, a bigger step, a bigger leap of independence, at which point I sort of happened across the opportunity of machine learning and then sort of really went for it. Mm-hmm. So it was when you returned to Cambridge to take up your college research fellowship that you started working in the field of machine learning. Was there anything in particular that prompted this pivot to more computer-based things? You just said it was by chance. So what, it, it what, was, what happened there? So it was by serendipity. So it really started out still when I was in Israel having a, a Skype call one evening with a PhD student up in the materials department that I knew and they were discussing, telling me one of the computational mathematical problems they were having in that instance, they were trying to design new alloys for Rolls-Royce, where you have to get lots of properties to be correct. It's got to be simultaneously strong at high temperature, the obvious one, but it's also got to be cheap enough to be commercially viable, and it's got to be light enough so the plane can take off from the ground, amongst other things. And they were struggling to merge together predictions for all of these properties in a sensible way, at which point I helped them out with a piece of maths in order to, to do that, it's sort of true interdisciplinary research, taking something that's obvious in one field and porting it across to another field where it's truly not obvious. And that went very well. They went off and designed an alloy, made it, it work, which is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> very excited uh, by that and also by the sort of larger research budgets available in that area. And it was that that then drew me across to start to work in that machine learning area. Mm-hmm. And so you talk about taking something that's very obvious in one area and porting it across. I know that sort of engineers and physicists speak similar but slightly different languages. I was wondering if you found sort of computing to be a good way of you know, translating things from one language to another, so to speak. Yeah. So I think the, the computing and how you write down the algorithms work, but what, were, what was probably even more important there was the uh, sort of knowledge that I had about materials from my undergrad degree that almost any physicist in the building could have helped them, but it's can they speak that right language to really mm. understand the problem the material scientist had and understand the correct way in order to explain and develop the formalism in a, so that it will be sort of attractive to them, practical 
to the material scientist and I was just a little bit fortunate to be in the right place at the right time and could speak that appropriate language in order to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it kind of sounds like what you were saying about the Olympiad questions, right? Like, it's not like the answer is particularly complex. It's just knowing how to ask the right question to then be like, oh, that's the solution, <laughs> right? Well, that, 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 and even more will be to the, the case that mm -hmm. you, you're quite right. That working, identifying very simple solutions is important mm -hmm. because the simple solutions will be robust. <laughs> when this problem changes a little bit, then mm -hmm. rather than designing an alloy, you're designing instead of concrete that the maths will still work mm -hmm. because it's so fundamentally correct that there aren't any skeletons hidden uh, in the cupboard <laughs> but it's also very good to do work on simple things because then people can build upon that maths and put another level of complexity on top of it and apply it in novel different ways mm -hmm. yeah, you're trying to solve the the simple problem first and then you can build the complexity yes, exactly yes and if you'd have come up with a very complicated solution then it's already it's as hard as one can work on mm -hmm. then you can't build anything on top of that yeah and i guess as soon as you change one small factor then maybe everything will come crumbling yeah. down yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> so you're gonna yeah, work on the most robust things possible now talking of building on other things ai has become much more prevalent nowadays or ai in inverted commas i should say with things like chat gpt and almost how much machine learning is used in all aspects of science, especially where big data sets are involved, like materials. Uh, was this something that you expected or predicted? And uh, were the sentiments towards machine learning similar at the time then as to how they are now? Well, so no, thanks for asking. I wasn't expecting, well, so I, I, I was half expecting that machine learning would be useful. It was where I started working on it was almost a decade ago before the hype had uh, sort of built up and I could <laughs> see the opportunity of it and was inspired by uh, a, a faculty member at the time, Professor Sir David Mackay, mm -hmm. who many of us would uh, know very well, who went on to become the government chief energy scientist, though unfortunately passed away. But at the time, he, he, he was a, 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 um, like a legend in the world of, uh, of machine learning. He'd done very, much, very important fundamental work on it, and I'd been to some of his lectures, mm -hmm. and so knew of the area, though I hadn't worked very much uh, on it. Yeah, I think there's some videos of some of his lectures on YouTube, which are really good that I recommend people. Absolutely. <laughs> and I also strongly recommend his book, Without Hot Air. It was the first quantitative analysis of uh, uh, climate change. And so that's mm -hmm. a very fantastic uh, uh, read. But uh, to, we, we've developed our own niche in machine learning where we are applying machine learning to the typical kinds of data sets that we find in the physical sciences which are quite different from those that you hear about in the news. The, the ones that we're dealing with tend to be have a lot of experiment, or they, the results, I should say, all come from experiments, and experiments inevitably carry uncertainty on them. They, the data sets are very noisy, and that means we can't just sort of train a, a model to just immediately predict all the values in it because you'll be picking up the noise and that's incorrect. So you've got to somehow get the right self-averaging of the results and also understand the uncertainty in those predictions. But another important facet is that typically uh, the data sets we're working with are quite small. This is especially true when one is working on the kind of research problems because almost by definition you're designing a new materials. There's not been explored very much in the past, he won't have much information uh, on it. And this then means that we need very special methods in order to overcome the extreme lack of data. And we've worked on systems where we've had fewer data points than there are sort of input variables that we need to define. 
And so you hear from the chuckle there that it sounds almost mathematically impossible in order to define a model, and it kind of is. But we realised that lots of material properties are correlated to each other. So, for example, a good electrical conductor is often a good thermal conductor, or a material that is hard is, all, is often strong. And so we can use the information from one property to help fill in the gaps of another property. And we've developed special machine learning approaches in order to do that, so we can extract more information out of that data set than others, make better predictions and design better materials. And what kind of materials are you working on at the moment? Oh, right. So it really covers all kinds of materials. So we, we still do a lot of work on those uh, alloys. Uh, 3D printing of alloys has maybe in the last five years become a big area. So we do quite a lot of work on that. Uh, a lot of work on industrial chemicals. I mentioned uh, concrete earlier, but also food additives to both change the flavour and the uh, pressing need at the moment is to extend the shelf life of foodstuffs, which is both a very important economic problem, but also very important in terms of uh, um, sustainability of the food. And we also do a lot of work in drug uh, design. In that case, we're working through another third or through a third party company who's acting as a reseller, as a reseller for us. It's a company called uh, Optibrium, who uh, 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 applying our technique to that area. Well, from some of the ready meals I've had, I can see where there's a lot of correlation between <laughs> food uh, preservation and concrete. Yeah. <laughs> so you've been working in this field for almost a decade now, and a lot of your work is very applied. Uh, in you, you founded your company Intelligence in 2017. Could you tell us what this company does in a nutshell? <laughs> so the company has uh, taken our machine learning approach that came out of the Cavendish, uh, uh, further developed it, commercialised it, and now sells it typically as software licenses where people are paying a certain amount per year in order to use the software. Now, there's a lot of work is needed uh, along that uh, uh, journey that the code that we came out initially from the Cavendish was, although I say it was robust, it was still had been coded up to solve particular problems and a lot of work was needed in order to get it. So it's completely generic and could be applied to a wide range of different problems and to iron out all of those final bugs so that when a customer sort of hit predict, it always made a, uh, a prediction. But also to develop the whole software stack to make it so that you can sell the code, that these, some, uh, the machine learning can be expensive in order to do, you need large computers to train it, and so it had to be a full API had to be developed so that it could be trained at scale on so various supercomputers that one would rent same time could also run on somebody's laptop. <laughs> the API allows customers to embed the software within their own software stack. So we've got uh, uh, some customers who are using it to control a robotic laboratory to do some research on the fly, to do some wow. to do some experiments, see the results, retrain the model, look decide where to uh, uh, go next. And perhaps most importantly, to develop a front end for the code, a graphical user interface, so that customers who are not specialist data scientists, who don't know how to use, for example, Python, are able to use the code and use the entire all the, the entire feature set of the code. And one cannot underline how important that's going to be, because a lot of the, the best applications, the ones where there's the... Uh, it will be the most impactful where there's the biggest budget are those that are in a factory mm -hmm. where there's people on the factory floor who want to be able to use the code 
And they're not going to be trained data scientists, but are, are deep specialists in their own uh, systems. And we had to be able to set the code up so that they could easily and want to use the uh, system. It's a, a colossal amount of no, work. Huge it's, effort. Yeah, it's, already, it's already difficult enough to make your code readable so that somebody else, another student can use it on a different computer <laughs> on the same experiment. So, I mean, I can't imagine the fantastic work that's gone into that. Was it that something that kind of happened naturally from developing software that like within your lab that I guess you could see could be applied to so many places and then becomes kind of a natural step to think about kind of licensing it and patenting it? Was that something you'd been thinking about for a while or did somebody come to you about it after reading one of your papers? How did that happen? No, you're quite right. But I was initially, uh, from some of the summer jobs that I had had and worked in companies, I could see that there was a big world beyond the lab and that there was a potential in order to... Um, to uh, commercialize this code and that would also be necessary to really get maximum impact uh, from it and the, the the way that I went around that was firstly to do the work with Rolls-Royce and then being an independent uh, sort of trying to develop my independent research career I then within the lab managed to get a, a, a research grant from Samsung Electronics in order to apply the same technology but to design batteries and then the university helped me get a another uh, piece of work with a, a small drug company where we applied the maths to that completely different area to see whether it would work. And we learned a lot of lessons along the way of additional features that we would need. But it's following working with those uh, three different organizations that then Cambridge Enterprise suggested to me perhaps we should to look at how to commercialize the code. And we had many discussions about the best way to do that. And they introduced me to several business angels whom I individually took to lunch. I interviewed them and they definitely interviewed me. <laughs> there was one in particular, uh, Graham Snudden, with whom I got along very well. And uh, he then introduced me to my the co-founder of my company, uh, uh, someone called Ben Pellegrini, who's got nothing to do with the university, but had worked for Graham many years ago. And then since then, Graham's been a, a great supporter in helping us along that sort of, uh, uh, that uh, commercialization journey. Mm -hmm. Oh, so what was this process of working with patent, patents and finding founding? Sorry, I'll try that one again. Was the process of working with patents and founding a company the way you expected it to be? This sort of working alongside uh, business people and those outside of academia. You know, was it? Uh, a different experience to what you'd experienced before at Cambridge and uh, other places? Or was there something, you know, sort of world that you felt easy to move into? I said that there's some strong connections with research that when I was sort of, uh, doing uh, um, uh, was sort of theoretical research in condensed matter physics, still the focus there was finding an experimentalist, pitching them your idea, your new <laughs> phenomena that you had proposed, trying to convince them that they should go off and measure this and how important it would be. And then working with them along that journey, uh, understand things that didn't quite work and uh, giving advice and or maybe having to fine tune one's theory. And that process is quite similar to working with companies that one has to somehow find the market to them. Then one has to approach them, uh, sort of, uh, have discussions with them about and understand their problem, understand how your code might be able to help them, convince them to give the idea a go. Typically, one has to start off with a little proof of concept project that's done as consultancy work, so they pay us by the hour in order to have a go with the machine learning. Then they you propose to them a new material or chemical to make, they go off and make it. You see, it, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work, and things need to change, and then ultimately try to... Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, so, 
uh, upscale that account in order to license software. And so that, that process is very similar, but there's also some differences, I'd say. The sort of typical difference is that the companies are usually slightly better resourced <laughs> than we are in the university sector. And in some uh, areas, maybe especially in drug, in pharmaceuticals, where they have uh, better, even more funding available for speculative research projects, that they are really willing to sort of give, give it a go. Mm. And... So I found that very refreshing compared to perhaps some of the uh, difficulties that we sometimes have in the university sector, getting grants and the time scales it takes mm -hmm. to uh, get those grants. But I guess despite that, you're still an academic, you're still here at the university doing your own research. So what is it about, um, did you think about moving completely to industry when you launched your company and kind of moving into that refreshing space, as you put it? Or what is it about the academic world that keeps you kind of drawn in? Is it the research style and the freedom, I guess, that you have to explore different things? Yes, yeah, so I think you hit upon it with that word freedom there, that within the university sector, and particularly I'm very fortunate to have the Royal Society University Research Fellowship, which gives me complete freedom and uh, um, uh, uh, um, uh, no teaching obligations with it, so I can completely dedicate 100% of my time to doing research allows us to go off and do some much more speculative areas than we could financially justify within a, a, a company. And so mm. we're working, we're pushing very hard at the moment on developing, sort of, uh, of, uh, developing ways to extract even more information out of the data that we have available in order to make better predictions in the future. And at the moment, we're working on extracting information out of noise that experimental uncertainty that usually in the past people also had the uncertainties uh, annoying it, uncertainty in the date at least the more uncertainty in the model and I can't quite see what's going on but it turns out there's actually information hidden within the levels of the uncertainty itself and we've worked out how to extract it so we turn something that used to be a disadvantage into almost like a gold mine of information that's allowed us to go off and make better predictions and the second thing I really enjoy about being in the university is the, the teaching of the next generation of, of helping the, the training up the PhD students, helping them be with them on their journey uh, of research and then seeing them uh, when they uh, uh, move on to go on and uh, achieve great things. Mm -hmm. So I guess you kind of get the best of both worlds. You can see your research applied through the spin-out that you have and working with those partners, but at the same time, you can still do your own thing. So that exactly. sounds like a nice balance. <laughs> exactly, yes. And even be able to then take some of the, the cool stuff we're developing right mm -hmm. now and then take it out to industry mm -hmm. and uh, being able to, to drive a larger impact with it than we would be able to mm -hmm. in the university sector. Right. Well, thank you so much. I think that's all we have time for today, but thanks for joining us. <laughs> yeah, thanks for talking to us through all the things you've been up to. Thank you, Gareth, for joining us. You can find out more about the group's research at www.tcm.phy.sam.ac.uk forward slash tilde, which is a little squiggle, GJC29. As always, if you'd like to learn more about our work at the Cambridge Laboratory, please go to our website, www.phy.sam.ac.uk, and tag us on social media with hashtag PeopleDoingPhysics. This episode, as ever, was recorded and edited by Chris Brock. Thank you for listening to People Doing Physics, and we'll see you next month. Mm -hmm.